Uh, my name is Sato Ashira. I am from the Department of Community and Behavioral Health within the College of Public Health, and I am also a part of the Aging Mind and Brain Initiative uh, here at the University of Iowa. My research focuses on looking at the social environment and social relationships uh, that older adults have with others and how these social factors may influence their health and well-being. Before I came into public health research, I worked for several years as a music therapist, mostly working in long-term care settings such as nursing homes and assisted living, uh, working with older adults who were affected by dementia. So although it's been a while since I was in any clinical setting, if I make any difference to clinical settings, that will be what I know and that will be what I will be talking about. So this is my disclosure statement, and I'm going to move on. Uh, so today I want to start my presentation by uh, talking about the importance of social environment on health and well-being, and specifically about older adults. I then want to take some time to talk about basic social network concepts that we use in our social network research that I think are also very useful uh, in thinking about as we provide care and services to older adults in our daily lives. I then want to uh, talk a little bit about one of my pilot projects that I conducted before I came to this university over University of Memphis that looked at the family caregiving social network systems of older adults who were affected by dementia. Then finally, I want to talk about some of the ways that we can uh, enhance the social environment of older adults the ways to uh, strengthen some of the social relationships the older adults are having with others uh, in order to help them uh, maintain their health and well-being. So I'm going to start with a concept that most of us know, successful aging. So in order to age successfully, we want to minimize the impact of age-related changes and maximize the positive aspects of life. And as most of us here know, that there are three major components of successful aging. One, we want to be living longer. Uh, two, we want to prevent diseases and disabilities. Then three, uh, we want to maintain mental and physical functioning. There's strong epidemiological evidence showing that if you have strong social relationships, Having strong social relationships influence each one of these components that I just listed positively. Thus, by having good social relationships, you can age successfully. Introducing another concept uh, that we all know, healthy aging. So it's development and maintenance of optimal physical, mental, and social well-being and function in older adults, regardless of if you are experiencing some kind of age-related challenges, physical challenges and cognitive challenges, you should be able to age healthy if you are able to engage in daily projects, if you are skilled in self-care and disease management, if you are supported to maintain independence in the face of rarity, and if you are well connected to family and community. And of course, here is the point that I want to make is that having strong social relationships with your family and friends are nearly the key to healthy aging. So strong epidemiological evidence also exists as showing that good social relationship is good for our health. Uh, we know that uh, married people live longer. People who also have a stronger and more frequent contact with their family and friends tend to live longer. There's some evidence showing that there's gender differences, meaning that the data shows that men might benefit from being married more than women. And, and whenever I present this finding, everybody has their own explanations as to why this might be. Uh, but regardless of gender, there is a dose response. So if you have higher levels of connectedness within your social setting, then you're likely to experience lower mortality. In terms of cardiovascular disease, social networks tend to provide protective effects. So people who have stronger social network systems tend to have lower incidence of stroke and coronary heart disease. So if you have strong social network systems, you are less likely to experience cardiovascular disease. 
And if you were to experience cardiovascular disease, having strong social network systems will help you have better outcomes, better prognosis. In cancer research, social isolation has been shown to be related to higher mortality and lower survival. People who are socially isolated um, do not do as well uh, in treatment and outcomes of the treatment as compared to those who are not socially isolated. For cognitive functioning, social relationships also shows protective effects uh, in terms of maintaining cognitive functioning. And this is because um, it is said that social engagement continues to change your brain. In order to be socially engaged, you are constantly needing to observe what's going on in your social environment and you have to be thinking about how to interact with other people, how to respond to what other people are saying that cognitively changes uh, your brain in uh, that way that you could maintain your activity. So one big uh, message here is that the effect of social relationships on health is not specific to any one disease processes. So it's not just good for your heart health, it's not just good for your cognitive health, but it is good for your overall health and well-being. Social networks tend to also have an influence on our health behaviors. It has been shown that socially well-connected individuals tend to exhibit healthier profiles of lifestyle behaviors than those who are socially isolated. So socially connected people tend to smoke less, they tend to eat better, and they tend to exercise more. There is some evidence also on social influence within intimate relationships. So for example, among men, their alcohol consumption tends to increase when they are widowed or divorced. However, it tends to decline when they remarry. On the other hand, for women, drinking tends to decrease when they become widowed or divorced, but it increases when they marry. So this is a good example of uh, how social context might be influencing our behaviors. And it's also a good example showing that social influence can occur both in positive direction as well as negative direction. Another good example would be peer pressure to smoke. So this might be looked at social support to do something together. However, the impact on behavior that's having uh, may lead to a worse or not so good health outcome in the end. So there are two main hypotheses as to why we think social networks influence our health. One is called stress buffering. So stress buffering hypothesis says that social networks provide resources for individuals to cope with stressful circumstances. So we all have daily stressors, so we are constantly experiencing stresses associated with our lives. You might have to uh, take your kids to school and you have to go into your work, you might have to work with difficult people. The school lets out on snow days and you have to figure out what to do with your kids. All those small stressors can impact the outcome of our health. When these stresses are there, if you have a lot of support, then you may be able to maintain health. However, if you don't have not so optimal support, or if you don't have any support at all, you may be experiencing illnesses. So if you don't have support, then you don't have these buffers that can help you move on with your daily lives. So that is stress buffering hypothesis. The other hypothesis is main effect. Um, social networks facilitate well-being whether stress is present or not. Uh, this is because it satisfies our basic human needs to be socially connected. As human beings, we all need to be socially connected and that is why complete social isolation is very bad for our health. So even if there is no stress present in our lives right now, if you're connected, if you're within the social setting with other people, um, then you are able to maintain your well-being. So a lot of studies have shown that very low levels of social connectedness is very bad for your health. So there's a lot of studies showing uh, high rates of mortality and suicide rate among those who are very socially isolated. 
On the other hand, uh, some studies have also shown that very high levels of social connectedness may also be not so good for your health. This may be the case when you have so many people around you, surrounding you, uh, needing support or needing help or needing attention, um, then it might be very taxing for you to pay attention to each one of them and to make sure that everybody's doing well. Uh, in other cases, you might be connected to so many different people and many of them are experiencing high levels of stress, meaning that by having a lot of people, you are indirectly being exposed to a lot of life stressors that is beyond what you're normally experiencing that can also have negative impacts on your health and well-being. One of the famous studies showed, um, this study was with elderly African-American women, showed that it was actually having at least one strong social relationship that was important. Having additional strong relationships two, three, four or more did not have much of an added benefit uh, to the well-being of this disorder woman. However, not having that one person, not having anybody in their social networks that they could call strong social relationship was very uh, deleterious on their depression um, symptoms. So it's that one person that is very important in your life who can help maintain your health and well-being. Um, so here I want to talk a little bit about some of the basic social network concepts that we use often in our research and that I, again I think would be helpful as we all work with older adults in our daily lives and to try to find out how we could maybe facilitate their social well-being and social relationships. So in order to understand social network systems, we can look at social network structures as well as social network functions. And first, I'm going to focus on the structural characteristics of the social network systems. And these are uh, some of the examples of structural characteristics of social network systems. The first one is very obvious size. Uh, size is simply how many people do we have in our social network systems. So in this example, if you're not familiar with how um, social network diagrams are uh, drawn, those circles usually indicate individuals. And in some cases, those circles indicate organizations. But in this case, uh, I'm going to use the example of individuals. And there are 16 circles uh, in this diagram indicating that network size will be 16, and there are 16 individuals surrounding this older person, the focal person that's shown in red on this diagram. And we want to pay attention to the size of social network systems because studies have shown, and numerous studies have shown, that larger social networks are associated with health benefits and as well as higher levels of social support availabilities. Um, so if you have more people in your network systems, you're more likely to have support sources. Uh, if you were to need something, there are usually people who can help you. So if you're trying to enhance somebody, some of your clients' social network systems, you may want to stop and think about, what, okay, what is the size of this person's social network systems? In many of my studies, I interview older adults about their social network systems and I usually ask questions like um, if you have important things that you want to discuss, who would you discuss with? So these are some of the questions that we can use to elicit social network members to identify uh, important people in the respondents' lives. And usually in most studies that I've done with older adults, usually there are few people at least who would say, I don't have anybody. Uh, network size of one, I cannot name any single person that I would go to talk about, or I can't name any single person who would come and help me if I were to need something. Um, and it is a sad reality, but it, it happens. Um, so knowing the size uh, is very important. If this person does not, doesn't have anybody in his or her social network systems or has very small social network systems, then we need to be thinking about supplementing um, what's missing in this person's lives.
On the other hand, you know, I also have other adults reporting 40 people, 50 people in their social network systems that, going back to what I said earlier, could also, it could be positive, but it could also expose them to unnecessary stress and difficulties that we may want to watch out for. So size is a very uh, useful concept that we can look at and it's usually very easy to assess. So aside from size, we can also look at the homogeneity of the network systems. Studies have shown that uh, more emotional and instrumental support are available in homogeneous network systems. The homogeneity can be looked at in many different ways. Uh, in this example, I'm showing that 13 out of 16 network members shown here are female, so it's very highly homogeneous network in terms of gender. Network systems that are highly homogeneously composed of female network systems are usually good at providing care. Uh, um, however, if this person's network system consists mainly of male or mainly by very young generations, maybe grandchildren's generations, this person may be having a hard time getting the support that he or she needs from his or her social network systems. Um, another thing that we can look at is the homogeneity in terms of age. If some people actually have uh, network systems that are very homogeneous in age, so everybody else around this person is similar in their age. In these cases, they tend to get a lot of support, emotional support, and everything that strengths the peer support. Um, however, people who do not have anybody or who who's network systems tend to be composed of families only, meaning that most of those people are going to be from different generations and they may not have the similar type of the support or peer level support that he or she may want uh, at the same time. So looking at the homogeneity of the network systems can uh, inform you a lot in terms of what kind of support or information or resources that individual is receiving from others in his or her social network system. You can also look at the density. So density means and the extent to which people are interacting with each other. So if you look at these diagrams, those lines, each line indicates that there is a relationship between these two circles that the line is connecting. The relationship could be anything. So relationship it could be uh, exchange of social support, it could be exchange of information, uh, or it could be just knowing each other. So when there is more relationships that exist within the network system, as shown in the upper panel here, the network may be denser. As opposed to the lower panel, the lower network diagram that I have on this slide, there are much fewer lines between people and network members uh, indicating that there are fewer interactions going on between the members of this network system uh, showing that the density of interaction is lower compared to the upper panel. And this also has an implication of course to our health and well-being. Multiple studies have shown that denser networks are associated with higher levels of instrumental and informational support. So you can kind of also look at if you're trying to work with somebody, one of your clients, um, trying to enhance the social environment of this client, you could take a look at not just the size, because size doesn't tell you how frequently or how, how much these individuals are interacting, but you can kind of get a sense of, okay, this person is interacting with this person, but maybe this person may not be interacting with each other. So let's say if you have an information that needs to be disseminated to family members, and not just one family member, but everybody should know. If you know that this person's social network system is very dense, so that everybody's talking to each other, it might be okay to give that information to just one of the family members kind of rely on that person to disseminate that information to everybody else. However, if this person's network system happens to be not so dense, so people are not talking to each other or not talking to each other frequently enough, providing that information to one person is not going to be enough. If you need 
many family members to have this information, then you might be needing to actually pick up your phone and call multiple family members to make sure that people are getting that information. Um, so knowing how the social network members interact with each other, how the family members might be interacting with each other can really inform you in terms of how you should be working with this family. can also look at the frequency of interaction between each one of those network members. And you can look at the proximity. Uh, this is actually a geographic proximity that we're talking about here um, to each other. All of us know that proximity is very important. Um, people who live close to us are able to provide a lot of different types of support, including instrumental support, where may even helping out with activities of daily living, as opposed to people who do not live close to us are not able to do that. They might be able to provide different type of support, like financial support or emotional support through telephone calls, but they may be limited in their ability to provide instrumental support or support and activities of daily living. The frequency of interaction tends to decrease with age. Um, so that is why um, we do pay attention to those. Um, and this is something that through network interventions that we could try to enhance. Um, we can assess how frequently this person's interacting with other people, including family members or their friends. And this might be something that you can actually try to influence and change um, if you feel that frequency reduction is not enough. Reciprocity is the extent to which resources are both given and received between two people. And reciprocity happens to be one of the most important functions of social relationships for older adults. So studies have shown that older adults who receive support from others, but who are not able to give back that support that they receive, tend to feel distressed um, and they tend to experience higher levels of depression. However, if the older adults who receive support are able to reciprocate and give back to them, then they are more likely to be able to maintain health and well-being. And I experienced this firsthand a lot um, when I was working as a music therapist because some days I would go into somebody's room who is crying and I will try to talk to them, try to find out why they are crying and I will try to console them. And many times um, they would feel better after they would talk to me, but many times they would ask me if I am facing any um, problems or if there's anything that they could help me solve. Um, and I found that when I bring up some kind of issues that, oh, in fact, you know, I was having difficulty with this thing, something very simple that people can solve for me and give back to me that they were very happy to do so. So it's the ability to reciprocate the support that you receive that makes you feel like you're contributing to the society, you're helping out somebody else that can have good implications on your mental health. So um, the structural characteristics of the social network system that I just talked about are sought to give rise to the functions of these systems. So these characteristics like size and homogeneity and density can really determine what kind of function, what kind of resources each person can get out of this network system. So moving on to the network functions. Social support is one of the functions uh, and it has been studied a lot, as you probably know. Uh, social support is very important to our health. The definition of social support is that the sender of the resource, sender of the support, has to be sending it with an intent to being supported. Uh, there are many cases when senders are intending to be supportive, but receivers do not feel that they are supportive. That happens. Um, but as long as the sender is intending to be helpful, we call it social support. 
But yes, this is another reason that we have a big field of literature that talks about negative outcomes of social support. So we need to be paying attention to these unintended consequences as well as we try to provide support. Um, when we provide social support, then we want to be watching out for what's coming out of that um, attempt. Is it? It's not always positive. There might be some negative outcomes that we want to be paying attention to and maybe adjusting what we do um, to help this person. Social engagement is another function of social network systems. Um, the difference here is that uh, in order for someone to be socially engaged, that relationship does not uh, always have to involve the exchange of social support. So even though if you're not exchanging social support by talking to each other or by sitting with each other, doing something side by side, you are being able to be in social environment and be socially engaged. And this goes back to the main hypothesis that I just talked about earlier, that we as human beings need to be in social setting and be socially engaged. So social engagement can have positive impacts on our health and well-being um, by just allowing us to do that. Social influence is another form of uh, network function. This does not have to be intended as supportive, but in our daily lives, we are constantly being influenced by other people. So we are always being told to do something. We tend to encourage people to do something or give advice to people. Those are all what we call direct form of social influence. We are also constantly being influenced by what's going on around us. So there may not be a direct persuasions or direct advice being given to me, but I might be looking at what's going on around my social environment, see somebody doing something, and I might be adjusting what I do, depending on what other people are doing, or I might be adjusting how I feel uh, about certain things, or how I feel emotionally even in this environment. That is called indirect form of social influence. So we're constantly being indirectly socially influenced by our surrounding social environment that has implication on our health and well-being. So there are four different types of social support according to one group of researchers. And I feel like um, these typings are very useful um, as we are trying to provide support to others in our daily lives. So if you're trying to help one of your clients or people and residents you know, in your facility by providing social support, you can think about what type of support does this person need. Uh, you can even ask that person, what can I do to help uh, in order to be most effective? I say this because I remember this one example, one, one situation where I once walked into a resident's room because she was crying and I wanted to find out what was going on. I wanted to actually provide social support and I'm assuming that she needs emotional support. So I go in and I sit down next to her and started talking to her. Oh, I'm so sorry you're feeling sad. and. I'm here to listen, you don't have to tell me everything, but is it, you know, can I help you? So I'm, I'm completely assuming that this person needs emotional support. Then she turns to me and says that I just want someone to move me so it doesn't hurt anymore. So what she actually needed was instrumental support and not emotional support. So those four types are emotional support is expression of empathy, love, trust, and caring. This is what usually many of us think about when we hear emotional support. Somebody's feeling sad, so you go and talk to this person, find out what's going on, try to console them uh, so that they would feel better. Another form is called instrumental support, which is tangible aids and services that directly assist a person in need. So this example I just talked about, this person needed an instrumental support, somebody to move her. Other forms of tangible support or instrumental support include providing transportation or helping with ADL, helping with shopping, cooking, and so on.
The third form is informational support. Uh, it could be advice, it could be suggestions, or it could be information that this person needs. Um, if somebody was just diagnosed with cancer and doesn't know anything about the treatment, um, this person can benefit greatly from informational support about cancer, what to do, where to go, who to talk to, and so on. Appraisal support is information that is useful for self-evaluation. So many times you don't even need emotional support. All you need to hear is constructive feedback. Or all you need to hear is the words that, yes, you're doing the right thing. You're okay. It's going to be okay. Reassurance. Um, so that's the appraisal support. So you might imagine the relationships that provide one type of support often also tends to provide other types of support. So if you think about your mother or your very close friends, you can think of instances where she or she is providing uh, all type, all four types of support all at the same time. And on the other hand, there will be other cases where um, there's only one specific form of support being provided. For example, if you think about um, healthcare professionals um, or doctors, they tend to usually provide informational support but no other types of support. Um, depending on what you, you do, depending on your clinical work, some of you might be providing emotional support and informational support, or some of you might be providing mainly just the instrumental support. So social engagement is participation in social activities through one's social relationships. It is important because it defines and reinforces our social roles, our social identities, our sense of belongingness and attachment. And as I said, uh, this satisfies the basic human needs to be socially connected. And without that connection, without the social roles or social positions, we are not able to make sense of our meaning and belongingness. This is distinct from social support, as I said earlier. The relationships that allow us to be socially engaged don't necessarily have to involve the exchange of social support. And in fact, uh, several studies have shown that social engagement or just companionship is more important than social support in order to maintain our health and well-being. And here comes my example again, but uh, when I was doing music therapy, I often went around the facility trying to recruit people to come to my group sessions. Um, and oftentimes I'd say, hi, would you like to come to your music group today? And many times people will say, I will go, I would love to go, but I'm afraid that you're going to ask me to do something. You're going to ask me to talk to other people, you're going to ask me to sing or whatever, um, which I never force anybody to do, um, participate. But what they were saying, uh, what they were telling us is that they like to be with other people, but they don't want to be told that they have to talk to other people, or they have to interact with other people, or they don't want to be um, perceived like they need something to do. Um, meaning that they don't want social support, but they wanted to be socially engaged. And this was very apparent and not just one facility that I worked at, but many or all of other facilities. Um, it was the same that people were looking for ways to be socially engaged, but not necessarily wanting to be perceived as needing social support or needing group therapy. Social influence, influence on health-related behaviors and cognition, as I um, provided example earlier, where uh, social influence could influence our alcohol consumption, our smoking behaviors that have direct implications on our health outcomes. As I said earlier, there are direct forms of social influence where if you want to influence somebody's sherry, you could be encouraging people to go to music therapy sessions, or you could be encouraging people to talk to your family member so that you can get more support. Uh, you can persuade people to do certain things um, in indirect form of social influence that you could be paying attention to the social norms. If you're working in residential care settings, there might be some social norms that 
are harmful to residents um, that you might want to really address and change that norm. Again, this is distinct from social support because it's not always a conscious effort to be supportive. And because, as I said, just said, simple observation of what others are doing can influence individuals both positively and negatively, this is something that we constantly need to pay attention to. Social influence can occur without somebody being aware of it. It just happens in the social settings. Um, and as I said, again, it has both positive and negative implications on other people. Our job is to be aware of what's going on in those social settings. And if there's something negative going on, unintended, that we need to pick that up and try to address those situations. Because a lot of the times, people who are in there, who are being influenced, uh, by social influence are not even aware of it. I sometimes feel that knowing these terms alone can be very helpful because you might stop and think, hmm, there's something weird going on in this social environment. What is it? It's not social support. Oh, maybe it's social influence. Oh, but people are not trying to do it. Oh, it's in direct form of social influence. Um, and you know, oh, this is what we need to watch out for. Um, type of thing. So just, um, just providing some kind of um, terminology to it can sometimes help you become aware of what might be going on that you were not aware of before. Okay, so overall social networks tend to change as we age. Uh, social network size tends to get smaller when we age. Social networks also tends to become denser and more homogeneous. And it is because uh, we tend to have more relatives and families within our network system and less of um, friends and co-workers when we get older. So it becomes denser and more homogeneous. The frequency of interaction with network members tend to decrease as we age and uh, proximity to network members become more distant. So this is mainly from um, family members moving away from you as we age. Um, also, older adults tend to have more difficult time negating their network systems because most of their network systems consist of um, families and relatives. What happens in our network system, our daily network systems, is that when we have conflicts with somebody and that conflict cannot be resolved, we have some freedom of not continuing that relationship. So we have some freedom of regulating our network systems and say, okay, I'm not going to talk to this person anymore because she's just giving me a hard time and she's not good for my health. So we have uh, we have the ability to regulate and cut out some people that we don't want from our social network system. That becomes more difficult when um, people age, and mainly because if you only have family members in your network system, it is much harder to discontinue the relationship with your family members and your friends or co-workers. And this is all to say that we older adults are at increased risk for less than optimal social relationships because, um, because of these changes in their network systems. So I want to take some time talking about one of the pilot studies that I conducted with my colleagues looking at the family caregiving systems of older adults affected by dementia. All of us probably who's listening to this presentation knows that caregivers are at increased risk for mortality and morbidity due to physical, psychological distress. Um, we also know that caregivers are less likely to engage in healthy behaviors, thus they are at increased risk uh, for unhealthy outcomes. So in addition to the regular stressors associated with caregiving, such as physical stressors and psychological stressors and social stressors, families have identified conflicts within family systems as one of the major stressors in their daily lives. 
And indeed, uh, National Alliance on Caregiving conducted a survey and published in 2013 showing that 70% of the caregivers who responded to their survey said that they share caregiving tasks with somebody else, meaning that 70% of the people who responded said they had somebody else in their family who also participates in caregiving processes. However, only 9% of those caregivers felt like those responsibilities in providing care to the elderly adults were shared equally. So most people, 91% of the people, felt that these caregiving responsibilities are not equitably distributed among family members. And studies have shown that um, this perception of inequitable distribution of caregiving tasks have negative impacts on both those who assume more care as well as fewer responsibilities. So people who are providing more care than other people within the family were not feeling good. But people who were providing fewer responsibilities who were doing less than other people were also not feeling good. They were also psychologically distressed. So this perception of inequitable distribution of caregiving tasks seemed to have a very important implication on the health and outcomes of uh, health outcomes of the caregivers. And of course your coping resources come from different places. One is the support or resources from family members, other family members, who hopefully will have positive relationships with these, these individuals. Another source of coping is the support and resources from the health professionals. There's a lot of studies that show that uh, family caregivers often establish strong social relationship with health professionals or formal caregivers at the facilities where their family members are receiving care from. And having that uh, strong social relationship might have good implications on their health. So here it is, health professionals often become a part of family caregiving network, which also happens in our study as well, that we, even without asking, uh, even when we don't ask about professional uh, service providers, uh, many family members tend to include some of those, some of those professional healthcare providers as part of, the, of their family caregiving social network systems. So in this study, we talked to a caregiver shown in middle, CG, asked her, him or her about family members, including the care recipient, CR, shown here. Um, and we also got permission to talk to other family members from this uh, initial respondent. On this diagram, they are shown in pink circles. Um, and so we actually were able to interview multiple family members from each social network systems and gained information about all of those social relationships that we normally would not have. And some of those respondents also included um, formal care providers at the facility or outside of the facility. There were some privately hired uh, support persons that they had. Um, that were considered as part of familial social network system. So this was conducted in Memphis. Uh, we interviewed 72 family members from 30 families of individuals affected by Alzheimer's disease. We also conducted interviews with formal caregivers who were identified by the families as uh, part of their family caregivers. And these are the questions that we use to identify familial caregiving social network members. So we first ask the respondents to list immediate family members of the person affected by dementia as a care recipient. We then ask them to uh, list persons who are important to this person, this care recipient. We ask uh, them to list then persons who are important to the respondent himself or herself. Uh, looking at their support systems. And then, then finally we ask them to list the staff at the facility who have been important to you as well as the care recipient. We ask them after they listed all of those network uh, members, we ask them to list whether each one of these person participate in direct care provision or care decision making. 
we also asked about each one of these uh, family and social network members. Uh, what do you think about the amount of participation that this person is engaging in? And when somebody was identified as, oh yeah, he or she should be doing a little more or a lot more, we called this individual under-contributor. If somebody was identified as, oh yes, uh, he should be doing a little less or a lot less, then we called this individual over-contributor. We counted the number of family members who were identified as under-contributor. We counted the number of people who were identified as over-contributor. And we also counted the number of uh, staff members who the respondent identified as supportive. And we looked at how this might affect that person's depression score. And as we expect, uh, the more family members that were identified as under-contributing in direct care and decision-making was associated with higher level of distress. Not good, but this is what we expected. Uh, the more family members identified as over-contributing in direct care and decision-making actually had a positive uh, effect on the depression score. They were less likely to be depressed if they had more uh, number of over-contributors. What is also interesting is that we also actually looked at how many people are participating in direct care or decision-making, and, and that was not significantly associated with depression score, meaning that it didn't matter how many family members were actually participating in direct care and decision-making. What mattered more was this perception that family members are not meeting the expectations that they have um, in caregiving participation. So that was very interesting. Uh, to that model, we added the number of staff uh, who was identified as supportive by the respondent and uh, had, number of staff actually had a very strong effect on their depression scores. So, and they were more important. So, and another interesting thing is that we also looked at the number of family members who are providing support to this individual and that was not significant, meaning that receiving support from staff member might be actually more important than receiving support from their family members at this point. So what does this mean? Two main uh, implications. One, perception about family expectation may be especially important to caregiver well-being, more so than how many people are actually participating. Number two, Perceptions about support from staff may be especially important for family caregivers. And that is why we think health professionals may be well positioned to provide the type of support and resources that may not be available within these family systems. And that might be why they have such a strong effect on the uh, emotional well-being of the family caregivers. So we just said that health professionals are important in facilitating good social relationships and social environment of these family systems. Uh, the question now is that how can we do that? How, as health professionals, can we help family members to enhance social relationships? And here are some strategies, network strategies, intervention. So in order to be effectively enhancing the health protective function of social networks, we need to know who should provide what to whom. So I'm going to start with who. Who do you think you might be able to mobilize to provide support or enhance social relationships? One way to think about is formal. So formal caregivers or formal health professionals may be one of the sources. One thing you need to keep in mind is, yes, you can mobilize formal support source. Maybe you will hire a health educator or a counselor to go and help this person. But it tends to be shorter term. Um, so if there's a program, program ends, and this person will no longer get the support that she or he was uh, receiving. 
Also, the formal source of support tends to provide more about informational support and emotional support. And also, this is not reciprocal. So, formal uh, source of support usually provides things, provide resources, provide information, but they are not expecting to get anything back. So, it's not reciprocal. Another source that you can mobilize is informal. So to help this person who may need more support, you might actually go to this person's family or friends and try to mobilize them uh, in providing support and resources. Good thing about informal source is that it can be longer term. So you might work with them initially to help them provide the support this person needs and kind of give them some skills and information. But when you leave, these family and friends are likely to be able to maintain the relationship support provision um, as they have already learned the skills and they are there. Uh, they are they were pre-existing in this person's social network systems before you went in. And this type of informal source are very uh, sources good in providing emotional support. Uh, when you're trying to identify who should provide the resources or support, uh, it is good to keep in mind that uh, people who have experienced similar situations are usually the best people to provide that kind of support because they have empathetic understanding and they know what to do. So uh, one example might be if somebody is moving into a new long-term care facility and this person is having such a hard time adjusting, in those cases, the daughter of that resident may not be the best person to provide the support because she doesn't know what it's like to move into this new facility and having to adjust to the new social environment and new people around uh, surrounding the new residents. Um, the better source of support might be other residents who have just experienced moving into a new facility and experienced this transition and successfully coped with the situation. Because that person then can tell this new resident, I understand what you're going through, this is hard and this is how I deal with this. So uh, finding somebody who has similar situation or who has experienced similar situation is really very good. There's some questions about long-standing intimate ties. Um, somebody who is emotionally closest to this person, to you, uh, may not be the best person at source of support. Um, this is because that person usually have vested interest. Um, also, very intimate relationships, long-standing intimate relationships tend to have histories of conflicts in the past. And when somebody is trying to go through a hardship or trying to cope with something, that conflicts from the past tend to come back. So in many cases, it might be actually better to introduce a new support source that does not bring in or new uh, other support sources that does not have that kind of conflictual history in the past. Okay, moving on to what? What should they provide? Yes, one way to do is to actually increase the support that's available. So some examples might be um, caregiver intervention where caregiver is feeling like she doesn't have any support from her family members. One way to do is to one way of intervention is to go to her family members and say hey guys come on and come and help this person this person really could use help so increasing actual support uh, is one way to do another thing that you can do is to influence the perceptions um, many times i have worked with many family members as i was working in residential care facilities uh, family caregivers who were distressed about not having enough support uh, from family members when once I start talking to them and say oh they don't help um, when was the last time you talked to this person and what did she say and you know kind of trying to get the situation out of this person a lot of the times I find that all the caregivers themselves will realize that actually she did call and she did ask if I needed anything and I kind of told her that um, 
she wouldn't know what to do anyways, but she doesn't know what she can do or nobody else can help me. Nobody else can work with mom uh, type of comments and, you know, and maybe that's why they never came back to ask if you needed help again. Sometimes people realize uh, that, oh yeah, they were trying to help and but I kind of pushed them away or, you know, they actually helped. Uh, my sister once came, brought some food when I was so busy providing care to my mom and didn't have time to cook and um, so just talking to them about and working on their perceptions and having helping them realize that they might be actually getting some kind of support that they didn't realize or they were people trying to provide support that they intentionally pushed away uh, can be helpful and in these cases you can then work with this person to come up with strategies of, okay, how can you now talk to uh, these family members, go back to them and tell them exactly what type of support is it, emotional support, is it the financial support, or is it just the help um, in cooking meals um, that you need, and how do you communicate that effectively to other people. So that is another form of intervention, what you can do with this person. Uh, in terms of when, it is important that we are aware that different types of support is needed at different stages of coping. So going back to the example of if somebody is just moving into a long-term care facility, um, initially at the beginning of that stage, um, this person is likely to need a very dense social networks that can provide strong affective support so that this person feels a sense of belonging, they does not uh, experience the loss of attachment uh, and so on, that people from previous social network system, family members and close friends could be calling them frequently and say, hi, I know you moved, but it doesn't change our relationships, I'm still thinking about you. How are things going? Um, that kind of frequent interaction might be very helpful at the beginning stage. However, as the time goes on, this new resident is going to want to kind of get to know other people in her new community. Um, maybe want to start participating in some of the groups that goes on in this new setting where some of the activities that are provided, um, but maybe feeling shy. And at that stage, what she needs now is less of the intense, strong, emotional, affective support, but more of a wider, diffused network systems that provide opportunity for new social interactions. So that might be the stage where you can introduce uh, residents, other residents who might be willing to go and discuss and go and persuade this person to go to different activities with her. Would you like to go and talk to this new resident? I think she might be ready to start participating in other things. Um, would you like to go and talk to her and maybe invite her to some of your activities? Uh, type of thing. There are three types of social network interventions. I'm going to go through them very quickly. The first one is enhancing existing social network linkages. And I already talked about some examples in this first type you can train the members, social network members, in skills to provide support. Many cases, um, older adults might be feeling lonely uh, and socially isolated, but family members or friends just don't know how to support. What kind of support does this person need? In those cases, you can work with these other people surrounding the older adults and say, hi, so way you can talk to this person. Here's the way you might be able to support this person and, and kind of training them in their skills to provide effective support. At the same time, you can also train this older person in how to seek out support, how to mobilize the resources surrounding them. This is how you can ask for, ask for what you need. Uh, think about what you need. Do you need emotional support? Do you need um, tangible support? Do you just want social engagement? Do you just want somebody to come and sit next to you? Kind of helping this focal person identify what kind of support, what kind of resources that he or she is seeking, and then helping them uh, with the strategies to reach out to other people. 
Number two, developing new social network linkages. In some cases, um, people do not have social network members. Sometimes network systems are very overburdened. Uh, for example, families providing cares, they are busy providing cares, they may not have time for each other to provide support to each other. In those cases, you may want to introduce somebody from outside into the social network systems, could be mentors who has gone through this hardship that can help, who can help guide this individual or this family to go through uh, the stages of coping. It could be body system um, if somebody is wanting to uh, increase physical activity level, then you might buddy up some people so that they can set a time and they can go for a walk together. Uh, another example is self-help group. Uh, you can um, gather some people who have similar concerns um, and they can kind of get together and try to work things out together as a group. The last type is very uh, effective, but it's very difficult to do. It's enhancing the network through the use of natural helpers. So for this one, we're kind of looking at the setting as a whole. So it might be um, a unit um, in care setting facilities, or it might be the entire care, care facilities. But in these social settings, there are usually people who are called natural helpers. Uh, natural helpers are to whom others naturally turn for advice and support. So there are usually one or two people in these social settings where people go for advice or go and ask for support. And these people tend to be well respected, they're trusted, and they're very responsive to the needs of other people. Um, so one way to enhance this social environment uh, is to identify these natural helpers, then kind of help them, provide them with skills and resources so that they can do what they're already doing more effectively to help others and kind of create an overall positive social environment. So those are some of the techniques that I think we could use uh, and which I have used in the past to some extent in my uh, practice. And here are some final notes. Uh, networks needs to be carefully evaluated. If you are thinking about intervening upon the social environment of older adults, it is very important that you evaluate the networks first. So kind of going back and thinking about some of the structural characteristics and functional characteristics of the social networks that I talked about. How big is this person's network systems? Who's in there? How is it functioning? How are people cooperating with each other to do something? Or are there people who are having kind of negative influence on other people? So it is very important that you have that full understanding because no one generic social network intervention is going to be effective for everyone. Everybody's networks are different. Everybody's needs for support and resources are different. And those uh, intervention strategies that you're going to be developing or you are implementing, uh, whatever that might be, needs to be tailored to the needs of the individuals and the group of people. Um, so going back to the example of um, it might be that this person actually need the support, physical support increased. Or it might be that this person just needs to uh, think through what's going on and change their perception about uh, what's going on in a social environment so that he or he does not feel as bad, uh, having, kind of having more of a realistic view of the social environment might be uh, what this person needs in order to feel better. If you were to think about using the natural helpers within the setting to facilitate the social environment of the setting, you want to engage people in assessment. Here I say be aware of self-nomination. Uh, this is something I have experienced in person, uh, personally, where I, when I look for natural helpers or group leaders, if we were to do some kind of groups, um, we often have people self-nominating themselves to, to say that, oh, I help everybody and people come to me for advice. And 
therefore I'm, I'm going to be this person I want to do this program for you and I have done that in the past uh, not, it did not work all the time because in some cases these self-nominators are not nearly the same as what other people if we ask other residents would identify as natural helpers um, so and in some cases they are consistent but as our cases uh, when I tried it was not consistent so what you might want to do is go and talk to many residents and say hey if you had a program who would you go to for advice in this place um, who do you trust who is very responsive to everybody else's needs who really cares about other people and get some nominations from other people to identify this key natural helper who is going to be very uh, nearly effective as you try to enhance the social environment of uh, this setting. So this is all I had for today. I uh, just have one quick acknowledgement. Uh, the caregiving network studies that I talked about was funded by National Human Genome Research Institute. And also I'd like to thank um, the participants of our study, um, the family members who are providing care to older adults with dementia who are very generous with their time to talk to us about their social network systems. So that is all I have today and if you have any questions please feel free to email me at this address um, and thank you very much for your time.